This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Seriousness and serenity in the life of a family. Welcome to the Return to Order Moment. We hope that you find these weekly podcasts to be both informative and a blessing. Today we are going to shift gears a bit and bring you a message from the founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira. This message concerns three virtues, seriousness and serenity as listed in the title, as well as the related virtue of obedience. Instead of talking of these virtues as part of a philosophical or historical discourse, Professor Plinio uses incidents from his own life. Many of these occasions happened in the context of his childhood relationship with his mother, a woman of great strength and love, as you will see. In the latter part of the podcast, he will be answering questions about practicing these virtues, which were raised by TFP members. This talk was originally given in Portuguese on August 23, 1983. It was published in the January 2024 issue of the American TFP's St. Gabriel Bulletin. We hope that you enjoy this more intimate look at the role of these virtues in Professor Plinio's life and that you can find some inspirations that you can apply to your own life. So now, the Return to Order moment brings you Seriousness and Serenity in the Life of a Family. How did your mother teach you to be serious? How did you see and admire her seriousness? I noticed my mother's seriousness starting at a very early age. Depending on the play of nature, grace, and circumstances, when a child is born, he is unknown to the parents, and the parents are strangers to him. They gradually get to know each other inside the charm and suavete of family life. As a boy grows, he gets to know his parents, brothers, and uncles. His family is the station where he enters the world. He begins to move around the world and naturally opens his eyes wide. I paid attention to everyone because I was very focused on doing so from an early age. But most of all, I paid attention to my mother. Of all the people I dealt with in my childhood, she was by far the person who impressed me the most, who attracted my attention, and who I analyzed the most. Some things about her, which I later identified with seriousness, were already the seriousness I loved. For example, when I was three or four years old, I suffered from insomnia and woke up during the night. One thing is for an adult to wake up during the night. We turn on the light, read a magazine, pray a little, and go back to sleep. For a three-year-old, it is a tragedy to wake up during the night. Everyone is sleeping, and the child is alone in the dark. I remember that sense of tragedy when waking up. It was a shipwreck to wake up to the nightlight. My bedroom was next to my mother's. I looked through one of those old doors with a glass panel on top. My mother's room was dark but some electric light entered it. I saw that light, and my parents were sleeping. I felt exiled through the night and could not bear the solitude for long. I would get terrified and wake up my mother. She was a heavy sleeper and was breathing deeply, 
She breathed very seriously to the bottom of her lungs and exhaled with cadence without effort, difficulty, or haste. I realized that to talk to her, I would have to pull her up from the bottom of the ocean of her sleep. I would pressure her hand with my finger, but she would not wake up. I felt more and more distressed. Then I would get out of my bed and jump into hers. Sometimes I would sit on her chest, and she would naturally wake up more or less confused. I could see she had difficulty opening her eyelids. With my fingers, I would help open them. I was truculent since childhood. If I need to wake her up, I'll open her eyes. As soon as she awakened, I remembered that she would push me away from her a little, with great affection. She would immediately sit down, smile, and say, What happened? What's going on? I'd say, I can't sleep, more or less admitting to my failure. Yet that semi-unknown person I had before me confirmed my hopes, saying, Don't worry. Your mother is here. You did very well. Wake me up whenever you want. I'd say, Tell me a story. And she would begin telling me a story. At that point, my father, who also was sleeping, made a little impatient gesture in his sleep. I said to myself, You see... He doesn't take kindness as far as she takes it. I realize that I'm bothering her, but she loves me indeed and shows it in her every action. When I realized that, I was enchanted and began to love her from the depth of my heart. When she realized that I was distracted by the story and that she had saved me from failure, she would tuck me back into bed and wait a little to see if I fell asleep. I don't remember going back to her bed even once. She would wait until I was sleepy and fell asleep. When I woke up, this notion remained in my mind. When she loves you, she loves you all the way. I didn't understand the meaning of the adverb seriously, but I already had the notion that she loves me. During the day, I saw that she did everything very seriously, but never frowned. Her face was always pleasant and welcoming to all people. I have never, ever seen her lose her temper with anyone. By the way, my parents were much older than I. She was 30 when she got married. My father was 31 or 32. Therefore, they came from a generation entirely different from mine. They died very old, my mother in her late 90s and my father in his late 80s. Never did I notice either one lose patience with the other. Never. My father only showed a mild impatience when they were in danger of being late for some appointment. My mother was not very punctual. He was hyperpunctual, and they were supposed to go together. The height of impatience was for him to tell him in his typical jargon as a native from Pernambuco State, Madam, the clock is already running. His super-friendly, Madam, was a sign of impatience. One could not be more amiably impatient than that. I never saw either of them lose their patience. Their reciprocal courtesy was absolutely perfect. I always observed her to do everything very well. For example, 
She kept notes on household expenses, the small family expenses of a couple and their two children, which is very little. She didn't need to take note of anything, yet she had a habit of taking notes. She would sit down, open her notebook, and ask us, What day of the month is this? I usually didn't know what day of the month it was. I had to ask and ended up informing her. She wrote her notes with a pencil. We spent this amount today, Friday. Then she added everything to make sure her numbers were correct. Neither my father nor anyone else would ever examine her accounting, but she was serious about the expenses. Afterwards, she supervised the house cleaning, looking at every little corner. If she found dust, she would call the maid and kindly say, So-and-so, this spot needs attention. The maid took a cloth and cleaned it. She never scolded the maid or anything like that. When our birthdays arrived, she traditionally took pleasure in making cakes for my father, sister, and me. She also baked cakes for Christmas. She had a cookbook with a collection of recipes and cooked according to my taste. They teased her a lot in the family by saying that she showed an almost scandalous preference for me. She was never bothered by that and just smiled without saying yes or no. But I noticed that there was no room for doubt. Knowing that I really liked to eat, she prepared very ornate cakes with colorful creams, silver balls, sweets, and flower sprigs, whose name I don't remember. Then she served liqueurs and candied cherries. She baked the cakes with the care of a notary who issues a public deed. When the cake came to the table, you could see that she had put all her soul into it with extraordinary commitment. She did everything with extraordinary commitment, very well done, and very seriously. I remember her trying on clothes. At that time, the seamstresses came to our houses. People did not go to the store. The ladies would call, and the store would send clerks with fabric samples for the lady of the house to choose from, and then go back to the store. The store sent the fabrics, so the housewife did not have to leave the house. The sales lady would come to our home, and she would then choose the fabrics for her dresses. She would go to the window, compare them with each other, and ask whether the saleswoman had a slightly darker color or a lighter color until she got things the way she wanted. When the seamstress came for the dress fitting, she had to put a pin here and there. I don't know what for. She had extremely well-cut dresses for as long as she could handle the seamstresses. Later, the seamstresses slacked off. She was very clean. One of the many qualities I did not inherit from her is that she absolutely never dropped the tiniest bit of food on her clothes. She had a very firm hand and ate without leaning against the backrest of the chair. In her time, it was impolite to do so. She sat straight. She was careful in everything she did. Her dark brown and almost black eyes seemed completely black on grave occasions when she looked at things. On difficult occasions, albeit a little short, she lifted her head and stood her ground. My father was the most moderate of men. My mother was fiery on occasion. She would not say things against anyone, 
but sometimes would talk about a politician or something that was not right. She had a distant Spanish grandfather or great-grandfather, and when my father saw her take that attitude, he would say to me quietly, This lady is a Spaniard. No? I felt like telling him, Thank God. It was her seriousness. I understood that all of these ways of being were symptoms of one quality called serenity. I was entirely delighted to see this in her. At a recent lunch, one of you said the way we treat one another is critical to the apostolate of fixation, even when no outside person sees it. How does the grace of obedience create a climate to make that fixation more solid? What exactly is the grace of obedience? The grace of obedience is a grace to do what one's superior commands with all one's heart. It is very easy to imagine a superior from a distance and do what he says. Because we only see the general lines of what the superior does, and they are straightforward to understand when he has a clear and logical doctrine, then obedience is relatively easy. But obedience is much harder to understand when we live with a superior, and he commands obedience in little everyday things. Here is a small example. Recently, I told Mr. Googleman to get me some water. He got up, went, and came back quickly. Strictly speaking, being where I am, it would be preferable not to drink water because, in a solemn place, one should never do anything that satisfies the bodily needs. Man must proceed as if he had no body. For example, the entire time I am sitting here, I am not taking the most comfortable positions I would like to take. I do take the most comfortable position within a limit defined by the nature of the place in which I am. I know that this need does not appear in my way of being. It would be absurd for you to realize that I am fighting thirst while talking. You do not have to pay attention to that, but only to what I am saying. Now I interrupt and tell Mr. Googleman, go get me some water. He might think, is Dr. Plinio not violating his principles by ordering water now? That could come to mind. While that might come to his mind, I cannot tell him, look, I am ordering water because I am dying of thirst. I cannot say that to him because I will not be acting as a superior if I give him satisfaction for everything I do. I have to ask something which he may not understand. There are a hundred other things like that. For example, I am very tired and someone calls to talk to me. Knowing that I am tired, my secretary telling me there is a call for me may think, now is not the time for Dr. Plinio to answer. I answer immediately and know why I am doing so. My secretary thinks that person doesn't deserve it, but I tell him, bring the phone. He says, but Dr. Plinio, you are so tired. I say, my friend, I want to talk to him. The same day, my secretary saw me not answer a person he thought deserved it, and I was not that tired. How is my behavior consistent? I cannot explain the reason to him, because if I do, he becomes the judge of my actions and becomes my superior. For now, that is not the order of things. That is why he has to do something he does not understand, and against which he would typically object. 
How is it possible to spend a lifetime in continuous obedience to an immediate superior whose actions one may not understand? There are times when that becomes a real ordeal. My secretary is from the same country as me, came into my service when still a young man, and is very used to it. But I could suddenly choose a Venezuelan, Ecuadorian, Portuguese, or Spaniard, or anyone else for this service. Come and serve me. Different countries have many diverse habits and ways of understanding and feeling, and I know that my new secretary would find many things strange. How could he maintain entire obedience without feeling tortured and crushed? That is the question. Under obedience, we must see the institution and the ideal in the superior. If we have a kindred love of the ideal and dedication to the institution, we get over all that. If the notion of the ideal and the institution are not clear, obedience begins to totter, and after a while, we no longer get along. Either obedience is the daughter of very high enthusiasm, or it dies. That degree of enthusiasm I required. Another of you asked me if I could give you a prayer asking Our Lady for the grace of obedience and seriousness. The encounter of the child Jesus in the temple is about obedience. So when you pray and meditate on the fifth joyful mystery, ask for the grace of obedience. In the Holy Family, the Son was infinitely the most important. Then came the Mother, and St. Joseph was the least important. But as the head of the family, he was the authority. His wife and child were subject to him, and the child was subject to both. In other words, the legal order was the opposite of the profound moral order of things. As they were returning to Jerusalem, the child Jesus suddenly disappeared. She thought he was with St. Joseph. St. Joseph thought he was with Our Lady. At a certain point, one of the two felt he had been absent for too long and went to ask the other, Is he not with you? No. Where did the child Jesus go? Knowing that he would do anything that he did infinitely well, they did not have the parents' common fear that he had run away to do something wrong. They feared that the Pharisees or some envious crook had tried to harm or kill him. As you know, there are jealous people everywhere who might kill or do some evil deed. So they must have thought, Have we failed to watch over him? You can imagine that terrible sword piercing their hearts and their affliction with that question. Suddenly, they enter the temple and take their first steps. They hear his voice, an unmistakable voice, the likes of which no one had ever had. The teenager's voice mixed with the grave voices of the doctors of the temple to whose questions he was answering. They were enthralled. That did not stop Our Lady from approaching and asking, Son, why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I were afflicted and looking for you. The authority of the parents is such that she did not rebuke him, but rather asked a perplexing question because she was addressing God himself. He gave a mysterious answer, and she made an act of obedience. I don't remember his exact answer, but the gist of it is this. Did you not know that I have a mission to take care of my heavenly father's affairs? 
They knew, but did not think of it at the time. It was something mysterious, as if he were saying, In the end, I am the one who decides. I am the king. When I left, I must have done something very good, which I did not reveal. I did other things which I neither say nor explain. I took care of my heavenly Father's interests, and that is what you see me doing, as if saying, I am the superior, I have my mysteries, authority has its mysteries, do not ask for explanation. St. Joseph and Our Lady were undoubtedly ecstatic, because when authority manifests itself with good spirit, the inferior is delighted to see that the superior has mysteries and admires him even more. When a person is a revolutionary, don't waste your time. So, always ask for enthusiastic obedience when saying the mystery on the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. This concludes Seriousness and Serenity in the Life of a Family. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2024 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T.F.P.